eight weeks ago, we started a series of sermons on the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. It's been a long time since I have been so challenged by the Word of God as these last eight weeks have been. This is a marvelous passage of Scripture. And it deals with the Lord's intercessory prayer before going to Calvary. I hope you'll follow along carefully in the study of God's Word. I hope you'll take notes. I hope you'll pray for me as I endeavor to speak this morning. John chapter number 17, verses 9 through 12. John chapter 17, verses 9 through 12. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now... I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We come to this second division of the Lord's intercessory prayer. The first division deals with verses 1 through 8. Christ prays for himself. The second division deals with verses 9 through 19. Christ prays for his apostles and immediate disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, Christ prays for his future disciples. Now in the second division, the one we're in today, we immediately see three things. First of all, in verse number 9, we have representation. Verse 9, we have representation. I pray for them... I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Please notice Christ is no longer praying for himself, as he did in verses 1 through 8. Now he begins to pray for someone else. He prays for others. There is in Exodus, and you jot these references down, we just really do not have the time to run all of them and read all of them, but if you jot them down, it may give you a springboard in your Bible study. Exodus chapter 28, 29, it tells us that the high priest over the house of God had many responsibilities. It says that Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Now a word of explanation about that breastplate of judgment. It consisted of 12 jewels 
that were attached to the ephod, and the ephod was a vest-like piece of wearing apparel. There were 12 stones on that ephod, and each stone represented one of the children of Israel. Collectively, it represented Israel. He was going not in prayer for a lot of different people. He was going in prayer for Israel. He was representing Israel, you see. And then where the two straps of the ephod came together, there was a a button or a stone that held them together. And on that stone, there were six names on one stone and six names on the other side. So that when Aaron went into the house of the Lord and went behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, he went in there with a people on his heart and a people on his shoulders. He was representing Israel. We see him as he goes into the Holy of Holies representing the Israelites. They could not go in behind the sacred veil. However, the priest could go there and represent them. And so our Lord prays not for himself in verse 9, but rather for his elect. We cannot go into the presence of God, but the Son goes in and represents us there. He is paid for their sins at Calvary and now enters into God's presence through intercessory prayer with his people upon his shoulders and upon his heart. In verse number 10, we have not representation there, but we have presentation. The Bible says, All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Presentation. Here the Son speaks about the Father. In Hebrews 2.13, he's talking to the Father, that is Christ. The Son is speaking to the Father. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which thou hast given me. The elect belong to Christ through faith in him. And thus they also belong to God the Father. The Father gave them to the Son in order that he might die for them. And now the Son gives them back to the Father. Presentation. Here they are, Father. You sent me to die for them, and now here are the children that I bring with me. He represents us, and he will present us in that glorious day. Now, in verses 11 and 17, though 17 is not a part of our study this morning, but in those two verses we have supplication. The Lord does make a petition, but it's not for himself. He's praying for the apostles when he makes these statements. And he asks two things in verse number 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So he prays for their preservation. Father, keep them. I died for them, and I want you to keep them. Found in verse number 11. Keep through thine own name. This is one of the strongest grounds of eternal 
salvation in the Bible. Not everybody believes in eternal salvation. There are many denominations, religiously speaking, who believe you can have your salvation, but you can also lose it. This is one of the strongest grounds of eternal salvation in the Bible. Christ prays to the Father for our keeping and security. And the Father always answers the prayers of the Son. By the way, name me one prayer that ever fell from the lips of the Son of God that the Father did not answer. Name me just one. Not only does he pray for their preservation, but in verse 17, he prays for their sanctification. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. That word sanctification basically means to set apart. When God saves us, we are set apart to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And practical sanctification comes through the word of God. David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. In this second division of the prayer, verses 9 through 19, our Lord fully commends his people to the Father. I'm reading a lot of this today. I don't want to spend your time chasing rabbits, all right? And preachers are the world's worst about doing that from time to time. We get carried away. But in this second division of the prayer, verses 9 through 19, our Lord fully commends his people to the Father. They're being presented to the Father with all of their weaknesses, yet they're covered by the blood because they've been justified. In Romans eight thirty three through 34, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And dear ones, he's been there for the last 2,000 years, making intercession for us, praying for us as he did for the apostles in the 17th chapter of John. Here our Lord fully commends his justified people to the Father. They're yours, and Lord, whatever's yours is mine, and mine is yours. He speaks of no faults or shortcomings on their part. That's important. He does not recall Peter's impulsiveness and profanity. Now, Lord, Father, I... I commit Peter to you, but you've got to watch him. He won't keep his mouth shut. He does not mention the temper and anger of James and John who wanted to pray that fire would come down and send the Samaritans to hell. He doesn't mention that. He does not mention the doubting of Thomas who would not believe unless he could touch me. And he does not mention all that turned coward and fled at Calvary when he was crucified but he presents us to the Father justified just as if we had never sinned 
just as if we had never done those bad things or thought those bad things. Justified. Brings us to the commentary. I'm watching my watch, my clock here, okay? Verse number nine, let's look at it. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which are, or thou hast given me, for they are thine. This is one of the strongest arguments for limited atonement in the Bible. Now, of the different doctrines that deal with grace, often called the tulip series or called the doctrines of grace, usually the one that most people stumble on is limited atonement. It's the one I stumbled on for 30 years because I wanted a God who didn't love just some people, but a God that loved everybody. And not a God so much that would send people to hell, but God made a way for everybody to be saved. And I worked on that for 30 years and flunked the course. And one day the Lord reminded me I laid down my life for the sheep. But listen to me. Here I am chasing rabbits. Forgive me. This is one of the strongest arguments for limited atonement in the Bible. Would it not seem strange for Christ to die for everybody and then not pray for them? Now that verse is not going away. It'll be there when you go home and say, well, I don't believe that stuff. Read it. If his prayer is limited, dear ones, then is his atonement limited? He laid down his life for the sheep and not the goats. He died for us and not them. Marcus Rainsford may not strike a note of familiarity with you, but he wrote something that has stuck with me down through the years. And let me read what he said. Speaking of Christ Jesus coming, he said he came for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He arose for us. He ascended for us. He entered into the highest heavens for us. He presented the blood for us. He intercedes for us. He's prepared a place for us. He intercedes for us. He's caused the scriptures to be written for us. He sent down the Holy Spirit of God for us. And one day, one day, church, He's coming again for us. Not for them. Verse number 10. Let's study the mutual interest of the Godhead. By mutual interest, I mean the compatibility of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit work perfectly together as a triune God. The mutual interest of the Godhead. Verse number 10. All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let's define the all there. 
Sometimes you have to study the context when you run across little words like everyone or all. That doesn't mean every single person without exception. It goes in with the context. Defining the word all. Who are the all that belong to Christ? The answer is plainly given in the previous verse, number 9. For them which thou hast given me, they are thine. That's the all in verse number 10. Those whom the Father has given him, they make up the M-I-N-E, the mind of the Savior. Those who belong to the Savior are those whom the Father gave to him. All believers belong to the Father. All believers belong to the Son. And all believers belong to the Holy Spirit. Mr. Thomas Manton, one of the great writers in years gone by, made this statement and how true it is. He says they are the Father's children, speaking about the elect. They are the Father's children. They are the Son's body. And they are the Spirit's temple. Three in one. Let me enlarge a little bit. In Galatians 3.26, they are the Father's children. Does not that verse say, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Children of God. We are the Son's body. In Ephesians 1.22-23, He hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.19, they are the Spirit's temple. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. Please let me chase one little rabbit. Those many, many times who propose abortion being correct and being favorable and being all right and saying it's the thing to do are the women that usually follow it up by saying my body belongs to me and I will do with my body what I want it to do. I Beg your pardon. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to the Holy Spirit of God. And it's not for yours to do with your body what you will do. Now, when it gets quiet, I don't know whether we should take an offering or pray. Let's demonstrate that relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three members of the Godhead do not argue over the doctrines of grace. Quite frankly, they do not argue about anything, but that includes the doctrines of grace. All three, God the Father, God the Son... God the Holy Spirit are in perfect agreement over the covenant of grace 
which was set forth before the worlds were ever created. It pertains to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, there was no negotiation. When the Father said, I'm going to elect some people, the Son didn't say, now wait a minute. (laughs) If I'm going to die for them, I have a right to say about a little bit of who they're going to be and so forth. No, no. There was no, and the Holy Spirit didn't say, listen, I don't mind bringing some people to you. I'll draw them, but there's some folks I just don't want to draw. Let's sit down and negotiate this. No, they're in perfect agreement. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Number one, we belong to the Father by election. Because he elected us, we belong to him. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 4, make that very clear, and I want to read it for you. In Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We belong to the Father by election. Number two, we belong to the Son by purchase. He paid for us. According to Ephesians 1 verse number 7, the Bible says, "...in whom we have redemption through his blood." The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And then we belong to the Spirit by His seal, S-E-A-L. In the first chapter of Ephesians, verse number 13, verse, chapter 1, verse 13. And we'll pick up with verse 4, verse 30, pardon me, chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians. In the 13th verse, in whom we, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise. He speaks it about it again in chapter number 4, verse number 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed... Until the day of your redemption. Sealed. We belong to the Father by election. We belong to the Son by purchase. We belong to the Spirit by His seal. The seal is the translation from the Greek word. And this is what it means. It means to stamp for security or preservation. Watch it. It means to protect from misappropriation. That the Holy Spirit will not allow what Christ has done for us to be spent in any other way except for the honor and glory of Christ and ultimately our eternal salvation. We cannot be robbed of it. The seal of the Holy Spirit. Is there an illustration? I was brought up on the railroad banks of Norfolk and Western Railroad Company in Roxburgh, North Carolina, and spent many of my childhood 
hours of sitting on that railroad bank watching the trains go by, counting how many boxcars each train had. And I also was very careful to notice that there was a, a flagman or one who worked for that particular train that was going through. He would go by and check the doors on the boxcars. And then on one occasion, when the train engine had been disconnected from the cars, I went down by the railroad tracks, and I looked on that great big, big door on the side of a boxcar, and there was a little metal strip that kept that content locked in, and it was called a seal And that seal meant that everything inside of that box car, all the cargo would safely reach its destination. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and the entire Godhead ensures that the cargo will arrive safely. We belong to the Father, we belong to the Son, and we belong to the Holy Spirit. We cannot leave verse number 10 without determining the glory that he speaks of. Notice, I am glorified in them. The Lord meets with His church to be glorified by His people. We, we do not come to church just to be seen or just to be heard. We do not come to church just because other people come to church. We, we come to church to glorify the Lord for what He's done for us. How do we carry out this glorification? Well, let me read how it was done over in the Old Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter number 7, verses 1 through 3. In that passage, it's called the house of the Lord. It becomes the church of the living God in the New Testament. When Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord saying, For He is good. His mercy endureth forever. We should do the same thing when we come to the house of the Lord. That is to praise the Lord. And I wanted to enumerate this so badly, but I cannot do it because there's just simply not enough time. How should we do this in church? It should affect our singing. Singing is not for the person sitting beside of you. It's for you. And even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, 
And by the way, I've never seen anybody carry a tune in a bucket. You carry a tune in your heart. But even if you can't sing it all, you can read the words. And thank God in your heart for the message of that hymn. How should we do this in our singing, in our testimonies? Sometimes I think, my, my, some testimonies I have heard are very close to blasphemy. When people say, well, you know, I was really an old, pretty old heart sinner, but I let the Lord come into my heart. No, you did not. You didn't let God do anything, my dear friend. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. We do it in our giving. We do it in our praying. We do it in our preaching. And we do it in our living. And if there are things in our lives that are bringing disgrace to the name of the Lord, cut it out, will you? Cut it out. Stop it. Either that or stop church, one or the other. You can't have both. You hearing me? Now in verse number 11 of our text, Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. We have here in verse 11 the location of the Savior. Notice he had been in the world. The Lord Jesus had been in the 2,000 years ago. He came into this world and lived for 33 years in this world. He had been in the world. The Bible says in John chapter 1, He was in the world. The world was made by Him, but the world knew Him not. But... He left this world and he went to heaven. He ascended into heaven in Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the truth, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. We do not worship Christ bodily on this earth. You can be in the body, but you do not worship Christ bodily on this earth. We do not receive Christ bodily at the Lord's Supper. As Catholicism teaches, that the priest has some mystical power of turning the wine into the literal blood of Christ and the body of Christ, his flesh, the bread of life. We do not believe that. If you do believe that, you're dead wrong. The Lord does not appear in visions or upon clouds or in signs or among the candles. The location of the Lord is he's at the Father's right hand making intercession for our sins. Not a dumb yokel in a little confession booth Want to know what you've done wrong the last 24 hours. You're welcome. We have here also the location of the saint. Not just the location of the Lord, of being in the world. But I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. He's talking about the disciples. They're in the world. We are in this world. 
And we must not forget that. He can help us because he knows what it's like to be in the world. It was in this world he was slandered, blasphemed, rejected, accused, betrayed, and crucified. Could I ask a question? I've heard this question many, many times. Why does he leave us here? Usually we'll ask it when everything in the world has gone wrong and we have no more hope. Why does God leave me here? Why, why doesn't the Lord take me home? Hey, there's a reason why he didn't and has not. I really need about an hour. I really do. An hour more. We are left here out of God's pity for the world. God has pity for the world. God has a benevolence about him for the world. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust alike. God is concerned about his world. And he leaves God's people here because of the pity he has for the world. We are the light of the world. You say, how do you know that? That's what Christ said. You're the light of the world. If it were not for us, the world would be in darkness. Can you imagine what it would be like to live on planet earth with no Christians anywhere, no preaching anywhere, no churches anywhere? It would be total darkness. It was Lot's presence in Sodom that postponed God's judgment on those cities. He was talking with Abraham, remember. It was Lot's presence that caused God to refrain from destroying Sodom earlier than he did. We're left here in this world to develop Christian character. We're forced to live by faith down here. Have you noticed that? Sometimes sight just won't work. We're forced to live by faith down here. In heaven, we will live by sight. We will live by sight. But it is only as we live by faith that we grow in grace and become more like the Lord. We grow the most when we face the storms of life because it causes us to look to the lighthouse. That's why he leaves us here. Another reason why he leaves us here. We're left here to call in the elect. How do we call them? By preaching the gospel. It is only by preaching that men come to know Christ as Savior. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So it is only that reason. No, in addition to the other reasons, we're left here to call in the elect by the gospel. We're left here to increase our appreciation for heaven to come. Now, I think maybe older people have a slight advantage on the younger generation there. Because most of the younger generation has come to believe that they're going to be here forever. And you're not. There's coming a day, my dear lady, which lipstick will be the cheapest thing in the world on the market. It won't do any good. You won't be interested in it anymore. It's amazing. We're left here to increase our appreciation of heaven to come. Dan, stop preaching a minute and let the scripture talk. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. For this cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction is but for a moment, working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at the things which are seen, but not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're left here to increase our appreciation to heaven, the heaven that is to come. And we like to sing about that sometimes, don't we? I must say a word quickly about this. We have the location of the Savior, the location of the saint. And thirdly, we have the locking in of the elect. The locking in of the elect. In that verse 11, it says, Keep through thine own name. Keep. It's not you're keeping yourself saved. It's God keeping you saved. Eternal salvation. We do not have the time, but in John ten twenty eight through 29, they're in my Father's hand. There's no way in the world where we can get, that, that Satan can get to us because we're locked in with the elect. I must hurry. Verse number 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that gavest, thou gavest me, I've kept. None of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Boy, what a verse of scripture. He is not saying that Judas was saved and that he lost his salvation. Forever banish that thought. Let me point out... Quickly, two, three, a few things about Judas. Judas was given to Christ as a disciple, but not as one of God's elect. The Bible talks about that in John chapter 6, beginning with verse number 64. John 6, verse number 64. There are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. He knew when he chose Judas that he would betray him. He knew that. He chose him as a disciple, not as one of the elect. But also in verse 65, he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Please, if you would, delete that little letter A. It is not in the original manuscript. One of you is devil. 
And the word for devil could be daemon, from which we get our English word demon. It is not the word he uses there. It is the word diabolos. One of you is devil. Christ chose one knowing he was devil. Judas Iscariot fell from his office. He did not fall from salvation. If you will take the time to read Acts chapter 1, verses 20 and 25 and 16 and 17, Judas fell from his bishopric. That's the word that is used. He fell from two things. Number one is habitation, and God said, no one will ever, you'll never be replaced. You will be replaced. You will be replaced. You'll not live in this habitation anymore. But then your bishopric will be taken. Your office will be taken. That's why the apostles dealt with who were going to get to replace Judas. He fell from his office. Now you can fall from being a preacher and that doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven or go to hell because of it. You say, well, I'm a deacon. You can be a good deacon. You can be a sorry deacon. The positions we have in life are given and they can be taken. Judas fell from his office. It was all according to Scripture what Judas did. Psalm 41, 9, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Zechariah eleven thirteen. Those are Old Testament references. The Lord said to me, Cast under the potter a goodly price, and I was priced at of them. I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now listen. This is a clincher. I want you to get this. <clears throat> Judas is the only person apart from the Antichrist who's ever been referred to as the son of perdition. Now wear that when you go home, okay? Nobody else in the scripture was ever called the son of perdition except the Antichrist and Judas Iscariot. That verse is found in Second Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The coming Antichrist one day will be revealed. He will be the son of perdition. And when Judas Iscariot came onto the scene, he was ultimately called the son of perdition. Judas is the only man I'll close with this Judas is the only man of whom it is said when he died he went to his own place read it Acts 1 25 when Judas died he went to his own place by the way the rich man who refused to give crumbs to Lazarus at the rich man's table, he died and he went to hell. 
and lost people have been dying and going to hell ever since. But when Judas died, he went to his own place. Boy, I would give anything in the world for a good two hours right now. I must close. Those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior are saved eternally because He is praying for us. Let's stand, please, for prayer.